0: My name is Vida Sister Prince, and today is uh, October 15th, 1998, and I am sitting in my car, uh, getting ready to go uh, down at the riverfront, uh, getting ready to interview Charles Norton uh, about my riverfront, uh, Mississippi River project. Do you want to read my lips? or do you want me to write down the questions?
1: I can understand you. You
0: can. You oh, you look at me. Good. <laughs> um, could you tell me um, where you were born and when you were born?
1: Before you start this, who are you?
0: Okay, my name is, is Vida Prince and everybody calls me Sister. It's a nickname. My brother gave it to me.
1: Why did they call you Sister?
0: I think he couldn't pronounce Vida when I was born. My mother's name was Vida. And they must have said to him, this is your baby sister, (laughs) so that's it. And who am I, and more important, why am I doing this, and and what do I want to know? I'm a housewife, I'm married, I have three children and eight grandchildren. And around in the 19, late 1970s, I got started interviewing people. First for the St. Louis Center for Holocaust Studies, we did a project on survivors, and then I moved over all volunteer. I was I'm not a paid person, and then I moved over to the Missouri Historical Society. Am I doing okay? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and I began interviewing for their exhibits and they were doing exhibits at that time uh... every year for black history month so i began to interview for them for their exhibits in the black african-american community and then other people asked me to interview into the garment industry and uh... then there was a um, I was part of an exhibit for a- Asian American immigration into St. Louis, so I just have been interviewing for a long time. Uh, I just finished a book that is being reviewed for publication, <laughs> so I have my fingers crossed. But um, I, I was just reading a book on, called Rising Tide, about the river, and I just got interested and uh, spoke with a photographer here in town, Irv Shankman, I don't know if you know him, and he said to come down and come into this area that was to the right of the, uh, that was south of um, McDonald's and there would be people there that used to know about the, that knew about the river and um, and that's what I did, Charlie. I just walked onto this barge one day and uh, a man by the name of Don Plummer was walking out, and I said, is there somebody I can talk to? Uh, and he said, yeah, and he took me to Jack, and that's how it started. Now, what am I gonna do with this? <sighs> I just, it's like any any place else I've interviewed in St. Louis, it's a piece of history. Uh, I'd like to know why people, um, I wonder why, why this is here, as opposed to what it was, what you did 30 years ago, um, why people are still doing this, living here. Um, and I just find it very interesting that what's happened to the riverfront.
1: Are you just freelancing on your own, or you're well, employed by someone? no, doing this? I'm
0: not employed by anybody. You're
1: strictly a freelancer.
0: At the moment, yes. I would. The other project I did, I did it through, not through the history museum, but I had people there that were advising me, and I told them that I would give the tapes and the transcripts to their archives, and. If I didn't do anything with this material myself, you know, I would give it to either the museum, the Missouri Historical Society, or I know maybe the Mercantile Library would be interested in it. It's not something that's gonna sit on a shelf somewhere. What
1: does your husband do?
0: My husband's retired and he worked for uh, Central States paper and bag, it used to be paper and bag country central states diversified and that's how I'm acquainted with Russell Flowers because Russell bought central states. My husband didn't own it. It was a family-owned business and then um, everybody had stock and then the family was gone but my husband was president of it and then so that's how we met. That's how I know Russell is because he bought central states which is no longer it's all dissolved now. But that's my tie to him. So that's, that's it. And um, I guess I'm just a person who gets <laughs> grabbed by something. I mean, I get excited writing down here. Um, I can understand and I, I appreciate your asking me, um, though most people don't. But I think it's the intelligent thing to do.
1: I, I'm interested in people.
0: Oh, okay. So
1: I've always mm-hmm. worked close with people. Okay. The people that work for me, I, I want to know about their history and everything about them.
0: Yeah. Well, that's that's mine. I can. If you have, want to ask me more, I'll I'll tell you more. Uh, I grew up here, and I don't think that people think about the river. Most people, I don't think they. Know anything about it? I didn't. Um, when it flooded, I worked on the Salvation Army and packed boxes. And it dawned on me at that time that if you hadn't done that, living out where I live, you wouldn't have to even think about this. You you wouldn't have. If you didn't watch the news. If you didn't do something, you wouldn't even have to be concerned with it. It's like everything else, you can isolate yourself. And I think, um, I've gone to the Mercantile Library and just now, you know, and looked at books and the history and, and the pictures of the steamboats and stuff that, that was so busy here.
1: Have you met the Fred Lye family? Fred Lahaye, L-E-Y-H-E. They're the most historical people of the river business. Have they given you Dick Burke's name? Mm -mm. Dick Burke is the son-in-law of Fred Lye, who used to be the Eagle Packet Company. Mm -hmm. The uh, Lye family, Captain Buck Lye and his brother, had the major packet boats that was always landing up here at Laclede's Landing, Uh and they owned that area up there, and they were really the pioneers of the river industry.
0: What years are we talking about now?
1: You're going way back, going way back here. You should go up to the old courthouse up here, Mm -hmm. have you been in there?
0: Not lately, not for this.
1: And over on your left as you go in is a river history museum. Okay. Have you not seen that? You should see it.
0: Oh,
1: yeah, that. okay. Yeah, right up mm-hmm. here on what, on 4th Street? Mm-hmm. Oh, the next 4th Street. Go in on 4th Street side and go to your left to the where they sell all the big books and everything on river history. And you'll see a lot on the Lye family. It's La Hay, but they call him Fred Lye. He died recently. And his father and his uncle pioneered this river with packet boats. Yeah. They had the old eagle uh, packet and, believe me, they were big time in the river. That's when they used to haul cattle and uh, pigs and things and mm-hmm. bring cotton and, you know, from yeah. one area to another and passengers and uh, and uh, the whole works. Now that is where river history and transportation would begin for you.
0: Is that the 1800s you And that's
1: what you really would, if you were going to write a book, I would begin and center in on all of those features of the beginning of transportation mm-hmm. on the river.
0: Is that the 1800s?
1: go goes way back.
0: Okay, so.
1: <coughs> Are you familiar with the Waterway Journal people?
0: Yes, I, I talked to
1: have you talked to Jimmy Swift?
0: Uh-huh. Isn't yeah. he interesting? Yeah. He's, he's a
1: wonderful person. Isn't
0: he? He's lovely. He
1: really yeah. is. I've known Jimmy for 45 years.
0: Yeah. He's he's very special. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, the uh, Lye family and Dick Burke would have more river history, who is still in the river business, and he's over at Sojay. He called Eagle, Eagle Marine Service and they have an office over there and that would be the man that could give you probably more history and more information because he's still in the river business Mm -hmm. has ran towboats always been in the fleeting business owns barges and he has history in his background of his family Mm -hmm. and dick could probably be your best informant if he would cooperate with you which he's a very nice fella he's a (laughs) busy man yeah
0: yeah Well, I, you know, in taking up people's time, when I've interviewed before, you don't just interview somebody once.
1: (laughs) Well, there (laughs) are very few people like me that have nothing but time.
0: (laughs) But there's people that I, most of the people that I've been involved with talking like this have wanted to. And I don't mean this river part, but I'm talking about the other things I've done. They've wanted people to know their story. They've wanted people to do that. There's a
1: river museum down by Union Electric Merrimack plant also. Have you been down there? No, I've
0: been nowhere.
1: You should be down there. They've got more history on the river, and they, I think, come up to date pretty much.
0: What i really like to have from you is is, uh, your history on the river.
1: My history on the river, is not much to write about, You'd
0: be surprised, what I want is, I write people things, you know, not so much, I want, I need this to start it, but I, if I don't have the people, then I I probably won't even do it, if I can't get the people story of how you got started, and why you're still here, (laughs) and why you come every day and sit here and look at this river. So I would like to know, um, like where you were born and where you grew up and how you got...
1: I was born April the 17th in 1935 at DuCoin, Illinois in the hospital there. Mm -hmm. And I grew up in a small town in Southern Illinois called Cutler, Illinois, population of 500 people. We lived there, my father and uh, his sister And his family had a general merchandising store in Cutler, which was a coal mining and farm community. And they had a business whereby they sold everything sort of like Walmart today. Yeah. They had groceries, they had farm supplies, they had coal mining supplies, carbide lights and they gathered the poultry the chickens and turkeys and the guineas and all that every year we had a big warehouse with the poultry and chicken feed and all of that and we bought the eggs from the farmers and they brought in their merchandise to sell to the store with like a trading post and we would uh, give them coupons and then those people would take their coupon and go buy groceries and other merchandise and that lasted until I was fifteen years old. When I was fifteen, my father died, and my mother, naturally becoming a widow and housewife and never working, didn't know what to do. So mom went into the beauty culture business, went and uh, took a beauty culture course, become a beautician, and she continued on and I continued. At that time, I went to work for a creamery in Cutler, who made butter and ice cream. And creamery I, in Cutler. A creamery. Go creamery in
0: yeah. Cutler.
1: Farmer brought in their milk, and the creamery would make the ice cream and butter, which was a very, very high-grade ice cream and butter in a little community of that nature. That everyone within. 50 mile radius eight. (laughs) So I worked for them from the time I was 15 until I was 18 and graduated from high school Mm -hmm. and supported myself. I met my wife when I was 17. I became engaged to her in high school and the week we got out of high school, we became married. Mm -hmm. And I've been married 45 years to the same gal and I wouldn't take a million dollars for her. But when I graduated from high school, I said, look, I've got to do something to make a living, because the creamery job was not a supportive future. Mm -hmm. It was strictly a job which I appreciated no end. So we moved to Belleville, across the river. And my uncle was a construction foreman for Hefken Brothers, who at that time was big in building bridges and highways for the state of Illinois. And that summer, he told me, "I'll get, I'll make you a future in construction work." He got me an operating engineer's permit, and I, that summer I worked on the on bridges over around Scotfield and Belleville, and made a lot of money because it like, was a union job.
0: What
1: was a lot of money then? That uh, was in 1953. And that fall, when uh, about.
0: What was a lot of money then? What was what? What was a lot of money
1: then? A lot of money then, oh, I would make like 400, 450 bucks a week because they paid double time, overtime, and we got work Saturdays and Sundays, which back in 1953 was a lot of money. And that fall came and uh, the winter weather started in around uh, November and my uncle and all the boys I worked with, which we had a lucrative summer, said, okay, we're going to rock all winter. I said, what do you mean rock? And they said, rock and chair. I said, what's rocking chair? They said, unemployment. <laughs> and so at that time, they were paying like $21 a week unemployment. I said, man, I don't want to draw unemployment. Is that what you do every year in this trade? And they said, yeah. That's what we do, we make big bucks all summer and we rock all winter off the unemployment. So I said, well, this is no future for me. But two years prior, a good friend of of my wife and myself had came to St. Louis and went to work for Mississippi Valley Barge Line, and was a clerk down at the uh, warehouse down at the foot of Rutger Street for those people on the river, which had towboats and barges and the terminal unloading the freight. And he and I were good friends. He said, I told him, I said, Maurice, his name was Maurice Schreiner. I said, man, I'm out of work. Uh, they tell me I got a rock. He said, well, let me take you over to the river because there's an old fellow over there who has a tugboat company. And the, uh, he has problems. He doesn't have a bookkeeping system. And IRS had evidently came down and spanked his wrist because he didn't keep records, and he said he needs a clerk and a bookkeeper to run an office for him because he doesn't have one. So I said good, and Maurice brought me over here to uh, St. Louis Fuel and Supply, which at that time was up at Poplar Street, where the Poplar Street Bridge was built, and introduced me to old Captain Allgar. Spell it. Captain Algar, A-L-L-G-I-R-E. Thank you. And Pop Allgar was a old river man from St. Genevieve that uh, become interested years prior to 53 and had John boats, which is nothing but a big old flat bottom fishing mm-hmm. boat. And he put some little tonies on it and what some what he placed tonies on the little fishing big fishing boats what are
0: tonies?
1: Tonies are what you see that on the front of a boat that faces up to a barge to keep the uh, barge that boat from going underneath the rake of a barge
0: how do you spell Tony
1: T O E K N E E see this right
0: out oh,
1: ton- tonky. You see that little barge there with the uh, I-beams and H-beams going up on it, welded, and the scratch coming down? Yeah. That is a Tony. Oh. And the purpose of that is so that barge can hook together with another barge and not jump up on top of it one way or the other. Okay. So Pop did that with these little John boats and he moved little sand barges around prior to my going to work for him. And he developed a boat drive called Allgaier Rudderless Boat Drive, which is nothing more than a big outboard outboard uh, uh, propeller and gears that allows that propeller to turn instead of rudders. And he developed this boat drive and got a patent on it. And he, then he built two tugboats, prior to my going to work for him. He had one built then another one under construction when I went to work for him, which was 300 horsepower boats to move barges because the barge industry was beginning to develop pretty well at that time.
0: 1950? 1950
1: 1953. Three. Prior to 1953, the river business consisted of people like Mississippi Valley Barge Line, a Federal Barge Line, American Commercial Barge Line, and maybe a couple more, not many. Not many barges, not many towboats. The towboats at that time would come in and do their own harbor switching and move their own barges around and go on to Chicago or New Orleans or wherever. But that costs the barge line companies too much money and delay in time with their towboats and their people. So they started using vendors with small boats to do this work before they arrived, to arrange barges for the towboat to take out of town and arrange barges from their barges to distribute to the various docks here in the harbor.
0: So they used the bar, the towboats and tugs that were here already? Yeah, Like.
1: yeah. Well, but prior to that time, there wasn't much harbor business. Okay. See, I am a harbor vendor, which means I don't leave this location. Barge lines travel up and down the river to the various points of the inland waterways. Barge lines, time is money. Those vessels cost, even then, a lot of money. Not compared to today's cost, but they cost a lot of money. Which time was important? They could be making ton miles. They always existed on ton miles.
0: Ton miles. In other words, miles. if
1: you put a uh, a twelve hundred tons of corn in one of their barges, with their towboat moving that barge they got paid so much per ton per mile for moving that barge. So their time was very important to them. While they were in the harbor, laying around and rearranging their barges and delivering barges to various points in the harbor, they were losing money. Mm-hmm. So they were attracted to someone doing this for them. Topolgar had the vision to build tugs to service these barge lines. So he had one little 300 horsepower boat built called the Judith Ann, and another boat constructed called the Ray K. Ray K? Yeah, his name was Raymond K. Algar. Judith Ann was his granddaughter. So I came in, talked to Pop Algar and I said, hey, I need a job. He said, hey, I need somebody to take me up an office. He said, they tell me I can't run a business unless I got an office and keep records. He said, I always paid my bills and threw everything in the river, which he did. Kept no records. Honest man never cheated anyone. Had no intention. But at that time, IRS and the government had started focusing in on small business. So he said, I'll tell you what. You set me up the books, and you run the office, and I'll build the boats, and I'll run the tugboat company here in harbor. I said, good enough. I said, what'll you pay me? He said, I'll give you 50 bucks a week. Well, $50 a week was more than double unemployment. So I thought it wasn't 400 bucks a week, but I thought I'll take it. Better
0: than rocking. Oh yeah.
1: So I took the job with the old fellow. And they had the upper end of the old Fort Gage, which was the St. Louis fuel supply wharf boat, was an old snag boat, and uh, we had our little tug and shop at the north end of Jack's father's operation, which was not even similar to this. It was a big old old Army engineer packet boat.
0: Jack's, <coughs> Jack's 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 father's place was in Jack's
1: father, and Jack was here too. Then. Yeah. And we were both young, uh, vibrant people, and wild and all that kind of stuff. And anyway, I set up the office for Algar and uh, got the business. And I did all the dispatching and everything, the clerical work and everything for Pop. And business started growing rapidly in the river industry. Everyone started building towboats and barges. Uh, prior to that time there wasn't near I- any amount of tonnage what Jimmy Swift could give you the amount of business as it's progress because he has records of that nature.
0: What made it change? What made the
1: industry, cheap, cheap transportation at that time rail cost was t- really expensive to do business in St. Louis area with terminal railroad at that time they charged tremendous tariffs on the freight cars and on what they did. If a you loaded a freight car on this side of the river and it had to go across the river to the other side of the river, it cost you 50 bucks per car to move that barge across their, their bridges. The McKinley Bridge up there, the Merchant's Bridge was a big railroad bridge. And so industry, grain people, steel people, At that time, it was a totally different freight business than what we have today. They had commodities you wouldn't believe that wanted to go to the river business and barges rather than rail cars to cut the cost. Because rail cars cost a lot of money, and the demurrage on a rail car when your product was in that car waiting to discharge cost the industry a lot of money. They didn't like that. So grain people become very interested in river transportation. Mm -hmm. Cargill Grain built towboats, barges, and Continental Grain, St. Louis Grain, Farm Bureau built a lot of towboats and barges. The grain industry primarily exploded for shipping to Europe and Asia on taking the, the grain to the coast. So they all become interested, and they all started building the up Gulf rally.
0: Coast. You're talking about well, the Gulf Coast. What down to the Gulf Coast?
1: Yeah, all of mm-hmm. all the grain you ships out of New Orleans. So they all started spending tons of money, big uh, big industry, and mm-hmm. in building barges and tugboats. Well, that made a demand in St. Louis Harbor for more vendors of harbor business. As I told Pop, build some more boats. So we did. We wound up having five tugboats here in the harbor and a monopoly on the business. And at that time, we probably had 60 functioning river docks. Uh, gasoline, lube oil, mobile oil, Iceland oil, you name it. All of Texaco, Gulf, all built river docks and they built petroleum barges, they built towboats, and we had more business than we could take care of. And I ran the office and Pop kept running the, uh, building the tugboats and I hired the people and we uh, did all the business. So
0: you had tugboats and the oil companies that you just named. They didn't
1: have tugboats, they had towboats. Towboats. Which they didn't want to use their big towboats either because they cost too much money. At that time, a big towboat was a 2,500 to 3,000 horsepower t- boat.
0: Tow boats take them down the river right. with barges, and the tugboats move them That's around right. in here.
1: We operate, in the river business operates just like the railroad. Your major rail companies come into St. Louis and put their cars in terminal railroads, big yards. And then terminal distributes those those cars to various docks and various places where the freight's unloaded and reloaded. But we did the same thing as terminal railroad, only on the river and the harbor. And it became very attractive to people. We made beaucoup of money. I kept raising the rates, and they kept paying the price. And Popolgar kept raising my salary. <laughs> <laughs> and I, he made me a very prosperous person at that time and he made a lot of money and his son Clyde came into the business, who who worked with me in the office. We couldn't take care of it. We had more than we could do and we were on a high roll and I thought it would last forever. The barge lines, uh, we, we couldn't please them because we didn't have enough tugs to constantly serve them, but they didn't want to get involved in it because we were union. The longshoremen had organized our company and had longshoremen on all of our tugs, which at that time had a lot of very good benefits, like the United Mine Workers. The longshoremen in St. Louis Harbor came in from New York, and believe me, they had good jobs out here on the tugboats. And they had good conditions and good French benefits and all of that, which we paid. And I just adjusted the rates to pay the people and keep good people. Well, that lasted until about 1959. Uh, was, I think it was 59, Pop Algar developed a uh, cancer of the bone and uh, became very sick and they had to amputate his feet and then his legs, and it's, it was a terrible thing, become totally disabled. And Pop and I was very close. And I decided, well, i probably have gone as far here as I can because Pop had a son who was taking over the business. And the son wasn't about to pay me what Pop paid me because he, <laughs> he, he needed money it. too. Yeah. And I thought, well, I need to go further in the river industry and uh, progress and promote myself. So I left Pop, uh, at at which time he had died. And I left Clyde. And I said, I'm going to work for carpet industry, where the big bucks are and where the big money and and important jobs are. And I befriended all the people in the river industry because they had to talk to Charlie Norton on the telephone any time they came into this harbor. I knew everyone from the president of Motel Oil right to Cargill and and Continental Drain and you name them, Valley Line and Federal and all the people, I knew them well because they had to deal with me. Peabody Coal Company was an excellent business uh, people who loaded coal over here across the river from us. That was Peabody Coal Dock, and they had a major barge line and a lot of towboats. boats And they hauled their coal to Minneapolis, northern state's power. They would take like 40 bucks. Okay. argo was one of the most attractive companies to work with primarily because they were a family-owned company. Mm -hmm. And at that time, I I assume about the largest exporters of grain in the world and moved more freight on the river than what the other people did. And they asked me, would you go to work for for us? And I said, yeah, I'd I'd love to. And would you go to Carroll, Illinois and establish a harbor business for us in Carroll, which is a turning point for the river industry. Turning point? Yeah. The Ohio River comes into Carroll to the Mississippi River, mm-hmm. and your Tennessee River comes in to the Ohio River and down into Carroll to the Mississippi River. So you had your major turning point of cargo in Carroll, Illinois. So Cargill said, we would like for you to go down and establish us a harbor business like you ran in St. Louis and Carroll. So I did and I worked for those people. I got three little tugboats down there and a bunch of fleets, a bunch of to tie barges up on, and we got some fuel barges to fuel the big boats that had to go down to New Orleans, which used a lot of fuel, and I ran that operation for those people three years.
0: What's the difference of with a, the fuel tug and another tug?
1: Well, at that time, you could buy fuel for a towboat for about 30 cents a gallon. Tow, Toe, Toe I mean. I said tug, but I mean tow, right? Go
0: ahead. Um, We're so talking towboats.
1: The towboats use a lot of fuel to go to New Orleans and come back, diesel fuel, uh-huh. which is heating oil. It's the same as people buy for heating oil in their furnaces. It's a low grade of fuel and that's a major cost to the big boats. Cargill had built great big boats. They had some 10,000 horsepower boats which would consume a tremendous amount of fuel to go to Carroll and come back go to New Orleans and come back to Carroll like 250,000 gallons of fuel. So there was a pipeline in Carroll. That's Dale's. Sand barge. That's your story right down the river. You know, little Dale that comes in here all the time. Yeah, you met him. I met
0: Dale. That's
1: his. Uh, they've got little barges and they unload sand, which they, uh, they dredge it out of the river, bring it down here and unload it, and then they deliver it to uh, Weber Company, Weber Construction Company's asphalt plants. They make uh, asphalt out of all that sand.
0: You were talking about the the tugboat, the fuels, they used the a tugboat. lot of fuel,
1: so Car- Cargill wanted to buy their own fuel direct from the supplier and cut out people like Mr. Jack Shoner and uh, St. Louis Fuel, who made a couple of pennies a gallon on the fuel for delivering it to them. A couple of pennies meant a lot of money back then to those people. So we put on a fueling service, a fleeting service. I did the whole work like I did in St. Louis down there three years. And I didn't enjoy a day of it because I was working with big corporate structure. Mm -hmm. Cargill was not the nature of business that I like to be involved in. I like to be an independent operator that calls the shots with big corporations and you work for these people. You have to work with our finance and budget departments, and uh, it, it gets pretty complicated. You have to more or less prophesy your profits for the future years, which on the river cannot be done because of nature. If you have a bad year on the river with ice, cold conditions, and river freezes, or high water, and there's a lot of drift, you can't begin to predict what it's going to cost you a year to function and operate in this river business. Number one, because you get low water, the boats can't go, they they stop. And then you may have low water all summer for two or three months and make no money. So it was very difficult for me to adjust to working with a corporation that's wanted to look to the future each year as to what you were going to perform and do.
0: A lot of pressure.
1: Yeah, a lot of pressure. And I didn't enjoy it at all. And they paid me well. And they were great people to work for. But I got very discouraged after about three years down there in 1963. And I said, I don't like this, I'm gonna quit it. I'm going back to St. Louis, going my own business. So I came back to St. Louis without a job and I always made a lot of money, but I spent everything I made. And I had to get to work pretty quick. So Fred Lye, the guy whose father owned the pack of boats, had gone in the harbor business because all Guy business had, had uh, become uh, less attractive to the business, uh, big business people, because of their union affiliation and the cost of labor on their tugboats. So Fred Lye went in business. Wasn't
0: everybody in the same union position though?
1: Not, not necessarily. At that time the Seafarers Union and uh, MOA, Marine Officers Association, and uh, Marine Engineer Association, several unions had become active on this river. So you had several different unions and programs to choose from. The longshoremen was the most difficult. It was like the United Mine Workers. They got too good of conditions and too good of, of uh, rates and pay for their people. So the, the industry started looking for a cheaper function to operate on. So Fred Lash had come to work for me, Charlie, back in St. Louis. And I said, okay, so I'm going to set up a harbor business. I want you to set me up one like, like Algar had here. And I'm going after some of this business." So Fred and I went to work and we set up a harbor business uh, called Eagle Marine at that company. And it uh, the business was there. They were all ready to leave what Algar had left.
0: So you all started what is Eagle Marine?
1: Started another company, yeah. And uh, so he got a lot of business. Well, Fred was uh, developing his business and Algar was dying seemed like a perfect opportunity to go in business for yourself. So I had two other people that I knew who had worked with me and for me at Algar's. One old fellow named Arthur Bequet, who was a great pilot harbor pilot, mm-hmm. knew the harbor and knew how to run a boat.
0: Would you spell that for me, too, please?
1: B-E-Q-U-E-T-T-E, Thank you, Bequette. thank you. Oh, Arthur Bequet, and I talked to Art, I said, well, you wanna buy a tugboat and go in business? He said, yeah, I think I would. Art had a little money, and I talked to uh, John Beardsley, B-E-A-R-D-S-L-E-E, Thank who you. was a engineer, port engineer, diesel mechanic for Cargill, and had worked with me during the operation at Carroll. I said, John, why don't we just go in business? We need a good engineer to keep the boat running. I got a good pilot art, and I will do the book work and do the deck work on the tug. Let's build a boat, go in business. They said, sound like a good idea, so we did.
0: Exciting.
1: Yeah, we just went to, uh, Humboldt Boat Yard up here at the foot of Humboldt Street. Art knew those people well because they'd built all of our little boats for them, and I knew them well. And they said, we have a tug under construction that we'd like to sell, but we need money. I said, how much money do you need? He said, well, that boat's going to run around $68,000, which at that time was a tremendous amount of money. And I uh, said, we'd like to sell it to you guys, but you're gonna have to get the money because we haven't got any money. So I told Art and John, I said, how much money can you come up with? Well, Art said, I can come up with $10,000. John said, I can come up with $10,000. I said, well, bar borrow $10,000 of mine. <laughs> so I went to the, uh, all of the major barge line people The grain people, the oil people, the steel people, and all of them. I said, give me a letter of recommendation to build a tugboat for St. Louis Harbor and a commitment that you will give me business in St. Louis Harbor once we develop this company and tugboat. Well, they did. They were very good people and uh, they knew me and I'd been reliable. So I got letters from Mobile Oil and Continental Green and Cargill and all Valley Line and Federal and all the people. And I went to the Bank of Saint Louis at that time. And I said, I want to borrow money to build a tugboat or go in harbor business. And they said, What have you got? I said, Nothing. I said, We got uh, I got two old partners that can come up with $10,000, and I'm gonna go down home to a little bank I banked with, try to borrow $10,000, and we'll put half of it into the tugboat and keep half of us starting business. So Bank of St. Louis people said, we can't do that, we finance railroads. We don't finance river industry. And I said, well, I can make money. So I left the place. And a couple days later, one of the vice presidents from the Bank of St. Louis called me and said, Hey, I'm interested in getting involved in the river business, in loans and business. He said, Come back up here. I'm going to take your application before the board. He did, and the Bank of St. Louis loaned me $68,000, the full price of the boat, which I was very happy about. And we built the boat and brought the boat out called a Miss Chan, which is that little boat right over there in really? the corner. Right here. No, no. Where? Right here. Oh, here. Yeah. The picture. We built and had that boat ready to go in August of 1964. Who's Miss Chan? Miss Chan. Who is it? Nobody. Oh, okay. That's uh, John Orton Norton. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we had the little boat ready and we went to work in August of 1964 on the boat, running it like a Chinese laundry. We (laughs) had no office, no overhead. I put my office in the second little room, a second deck of the Mm -hmm. Misham. And we started moving barges for all the people when Fred Lyon and Algar couldn't move them. There was plenty of splashover business. Well I was good friends with the people from Peabody Coal and from Mississippi Valley Bar Line, And I went to those people, I said, how would you like to make a commitment to me that we'll just dedicate our tug and ourselves to you people? And they said, great, come on, go to work. So we did, and I moved coal for Peabody Coal. For six nights a week we towed two loads of coal down to the Union Electric Merrimack River Power Plant Did that six nights a week. Leave over there at 1.30 in the morning, get back up in the harbor around 8.30, 9 o'clock in the morning, bring their empty barges back to them, and then we would go down and work for Mississippi Valley Barge Line all day. Work day and night. Art would sleep while I brought the empties back up the river and I would sleep while we took the loads down the river. and we'd get a hold of a barge and maybe go to Granite City or could get a nap. And we worked like 14 to 18 hours a day, and every day, and paid for that boat in five years. Never missed payment and made money. We made buku money back then.
0: Now we're in the 60s.
1: That so was in 64. Uh, fuel was like 14 cents a gallon at that time.
0: What is it now?
1: That's a dollar there was no fuel tax then and my insurance cost for the boat uh, for the tours liability insurance is a real problem on the river business because when you have a loss it's tremendous because of the amount of freight and so on and so forth Mm -hmm. and my insurance cost me twenty two hundred dollars a year in 64 and when i quit in december of 96 it was when I was operating the Valley Fleet down there, it cost me like $89,000 a year, and fuel was a dollar a gallon. So there was no comparison to the cost and profits. And uh, we ran that boat and worked primarily just for Peabody and Valley Line at their terminal down here. Five years, got the boat paid for, and then Peabody Coal's business, because of Southern Illinois' coal, high sulfur, started falling off considerably, and the people in Minneapolis and uh, the various utility people who bought the high sulfur coal, Illinois coal, started frowning on that coal and moving coal in from the Virginia soft coal in Kentucky. So their business started failing. And so I just dedicated my services totally to Valley Line Company. And then at that time they gave me a contract, a commitment and contract to switch their barges down there at their fleet for them exclusively. And I stayed down there with the tug and uh, rode the tug and kept my two partners until about, uh, uh, 76, I guess. And then Art was 65, and he wanted to retire. I said, okay. So I took in Jimmy Radice, who was a good harbor pilot, as a partner. I always made them part of the business rather than have employees. And I, Art retired, and Jimmy came in with me and John Beardsley, who continued on until he was 65. And he retired, and Jimmy and I just bought him out and I hired a deckhand to work with me and with Jimmy, and we continued working at Valley Line. Is that
0: Carl's son?
1: Uh, Carl's son, yeah. He's my partner in business, still is. And uh, we continued down at Valley Line, and uh, we adjusted our rates. They were wonderful people to work for. Mississippi Valley Bar Line was fine people. Who was that? That uh, was a major bar slide.
0: No, 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 Who, who owned it? Uh, what was their names?
1: Mississippi Valley Barge Line. The
0: people that owned it?
1: The people? Uh-huh. Well, they had a man named Barth, Bill Barth. Oh. Who was the... Barth? Super- B-A-R-T-H, Barth. Oh. Bill Barth was the superintendent of the terminal and the warehouse and the fleet and the tugs and all this out here Bar valley line. And mm-hmm. worked for them and he liked us so we continued working for him, making good money, up until 1986. In 1986, or prior to 86, chromoloy Company came in and bought out the owners of Mississippi Valley Barge Line, which was more or less a family-owned organization. It was a closed stock company, the Valley Line was, and they were at that time a major barge
0: line.
1: Was it BARDA? B- Mr. BARDA. BARDA. BARDA and Knockle uh, owned Mississippi Valley Barge Line uh, and uh, they had some other investors up in uh, Chicago that were involved in it.
0: So we have a BARDA who owned it and BARTH who, who worked there.
1: Who worked down here and ran the place farm down here. Uh, Bill Barta owned the place and Michael and they were great people to work for they never messed with you they want you to make a profit and run a good operation they were good people nice they were concerned about you functioning well for them which was uh, a great opportunity for us
0: is that pretty much like it is on the river Do people? Are are most people? um, All the
1: people uh, up into the 80s were like a family. If you were part of the family, you could do no wrong, and you were in, and you had no problem with people coming in cutting you out of business or or competition. Uh, It was a everyone knew everyone personally. We knew you knew their wives' name and their kids' names. You know. And it was a great uh, thing. I enjoyed the river business tremendously from 53 up until the uh, mid-80s. It was just something like part of life. Then when the big stockholding companies came in and started buying the various corporations up that were on the river, Mm -hmm. like the Federal Barge Line was owned by Herman Potts who Herman Pop was a nice old guy, a great fellow to talk with, work with, whatever. And all of these people then started selling their equipment, their towboats and barges and their docks and terminals to the big investors like Chromalloy Company bought Valley Line. Chromaloy was a major stockholding company. And uh, stockholders controlled the businesses that they owned. Uh, Valley Line, uh, prior to that, uh, selling to Cromloy had bought up Dad's Old Fashioned Root Beer Company, they had bought up Sunshine Biscuit Company, and they, too, were expanding as a family-owned company. Mm -hmm. So they were strong and stable financially. Well, Cromloy took a liking to that idea, their stockholders, and they came in and bought out Valley Line and their, their subsidiary companies. But that then, they naturally moved people like Barda and Nyckel out of the company because they functioned differently than uh, family type people. And so I continued working for Cromeloy from about, I guess, early 80s up until about 86. Chromloy sold out to another big company. At that time... uh, It was, I forget what it was called, but it becomes CEQA Corporation, which were the Printer's ink people Mm -hmm. who uh, print all of the labels on canned goods. Everything like Pepsi-Cola cans, beer cans, and everything. CEQA prints the labels on those cans. Tomato labels and everything in the store. CEQA produced in... uh, had more or less monopoly, I believe, on that product, had more money and they knew what to do with. So they had an owner, uh, I forget what his name was, that uh, was fascinated and enchanted, he said in Ford Magazine that the river had always enchanted him and fascinated him and he wanted to buy a river business. So CEQA came in and bought out Chromaloy's river business (laughs) because Norman J. Alexander uh, was fascinated and enhanced by the river, (laughs) which was the worst thing to ever happen to Charlie Norton (laughs) in the whole world. (laughs) At that time, he had more money than, CEQA still is a very major stock corporation in this nation. And uh, so he bought it out and he went into Valley Line's owners that Cromeloy had retained most of the people in their major operations and their uh, big Cromeloy building out in Clayton. Valley Line had like three floors of that company and a lot of employees. And when CEQA bought them they came in like a house cleaning service and just eliminated all of those people. They, they terminated all the river people, the biggest part of them, mm-hmm. that uh, had been there for 40, 50 years, and uh, brought in a whole new regime of leadership as far as industry and river transportation. Uh, they were heavy, sequentially more in logistics people than they believed in people who knew anything about river business. And they brought in young college people, which I certainly have nothing against education or college people in any manner whatsoever, but to bring a young college man in and put him in a position of making decisions for the river industry with nature being the prime source of your success or failure was a big mistake, in my opinion. They didn't know anything about river business, and they didn't want to know anything about river business. They were only interested in profits and how much profit could be derived from their investments. So I uh, began getting very nervous in 1986 when Sequoia took over the operation. and. Uh, they cleaned house out there, and my good friends, who was the executive vice president of operation, executive vice president of marketing and all that, uh, Mr. Spencer and Mr. Kenoki, who I had been befriended for many years, they terminated those people and retired them and brought in a bunch of new people. Well, I thought, God, I've had it now. And uh, I pretty well had, to be quite honest with you. And fortunately, the uh, SIGWA organization saw they needed a river man, and they brought in a man to be the president of Valley Line called Dan Markowitz, who had previously worked in the river industry and the grain marketing uh, with Merchants Exchange and PV and uh, the big grain people, but he, he always knew the river business. He had worked with Consolidated Barge and grain people so Mr. Marquis called me, said, come out here, Charlie, and I went out to Clayton, and he said, you know, we've had some major changes in this company the past couple of years. I said, yes, you have. And he said, uh, I'm going to make some more major changes, and he said, I would like for you to take over St. Louis Harbor for our operation and we're going to get completely out of the warehouse and fleeting, and they had tugboats too in the harbor here at that time. And he said, I want you to take them over and run them for me as an individual in your company. He said, I don't want to be bothered with that and that you're proving your success. So I said, great, thank you, Lord, you know. And so we wound up, the Marquis gave me, like, I had uh, four or five tugboats running down there all the time in the fleet and uh, took care of the whole works from 86 until 1992 and again at that time I got off of the Miss Jan and no longer worked on the boat and went into the office down at the warehouse at Valley Line. They, uh, I had to hire a lot of people. We went through about.
0: I didn't realize I still had my son. (laughs) Go ahead, I'm sorry.
1: We went through about 90 people a year on the tugs. Kept around 90 employees a year. And took care of Marquette's Valley Line Business for Sequa and did a good job for him. And he was very grateful and he paid us very well. Good, good fellow to work with. Then in uh, 1992, Markowitz called me. Things started mushrooming in the merger business of big corporations. Uh, everyone, the big people, were buying up the the what I call big people and becoming bigger. And uh,
0: Charlie, you're supposed to eat lunch, aren't you?
1: When I want to. Oh, okay. And anyway. They had uh, many plans to expand Valley Line into a big river industry. Markwitz was pushing it, and he was very successful, a very shrewd businessman. They were going to buy Continental uh, Grain Company's Barge Line. They had bought several Barge Line previous Valley had. But then, uh, in '92, Mark was called me one day, and he said, "Charlie, I've, I'm shocked. He said I don't know what to say, but uh, we have been bought up by CSX Railroad." He C- said, C- "Sequoia Corporation sold the barge lines and all of their interest to CSX Railroad, which is a major eastern railroad corporation." And he said they're going to merge Valley Line into their previous purchases. They had been buying up barge line like crazy, the railroad has. They had bought Sioux City, New Orleans, a major barge line. They had bought American commercial barge line. So a lot of barge lines. The railroad was absorbing rapidly, and the government didn't object to it. Previous to that time, the ICC would not allow that yeah. sort of thing because of competition and keeping the rates. Well, the ICC had lost interest in it evidently, because it was protested by all of the farm and steel and coal shipping people to no end. But the government blew it away and said, "Yes, yeah, okay." Huh. So CSX bought up Valley Line and. In 1992 they came to me, uh, the people from American Commercial Bars Line, which they had, had absorbed that name as a central name for all of various bars lines. They merged Valley Line into ACBL. and they came to me and said, uh, Charlie, you have worked here, we know, and ran Valley Line's business for 40 years, but we don't want you anymore we're going to run it ourselves.
0: Uh-huh.
1: I said, well, you you can do that. But I said, you can't do that until 1996. And they said, why not? I said, because Mr. Markowitz has given me a contract to do this fleet and manage his fleet and run these tugs until 1996, December of 96. And they said, well, we bought out Valley Line Company and we don't care what those people had done with you. Uh, we don't feel we're committed to honor those contracts. Uh, because they made an asset purchase of the Valley Line's river business rather than a corporate purchase, which really relieved them of any corporate obligations of the Valley Line. So, it become a legal technicality for sure because they did buy the assets. The CSX ACBL was not committed to BNB for the Valley Line responsibility of the contract. And my contracts I had written, which I wrote myself and made a big mistake, I said that I would uh, do and perform business for those people until December of 96, on the river business they had in St. Louis Harbor. Mm. Well, they didn't have any river business in St. Louis Harbor when they sold their assets. Mm -hmm. So we were on a legal problem and technicality in the very beginning with CSX ACBL in 1992. And they chose to, uh, they got some court orders to put me out of the fleet and take back their tugboats, which I had leased from them and I said, well, boys, I, uh, I don't feel you're justified in your position, but you, you have your op- operation of business. I got mine. So I obtained attorneys, and they obtained attorneys. And we argued for about a year and a half uh, through our very expensive corporate attorneys, which wound up costing me an arm and a leg. Mm. And uh, they spent a lot of money, too. And then they came to me. I continued running my business down there as if they didn't exist on their property with their boats. And uh, they were on a thin line and I was on a thin line.
0: And they they were paying you?
1: No, no, I didn't work for them. They wouldn't give me any business.
0: Who was paying you? I
1: brought in other business. In 92, I took in Consolidated Grain and PV Corporation's business and other people's business, and I worked for anyone that I could. Oh, you
0: were working for all those people. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. You'd said that but before. But
1: ACBL and CSX would not give me any business whatsoever mm-hmm. of the old Valley Line towboats or barges or any of them.
0: And these other companies continued to give you their yeah. business, yes. though. Yes, yes. Oh, uh, that was good. I
1: performed well yeah. for them. They liked me. Well, after about a year and a half of arguing back and forth through lawyers and threats and they're going to sue me for so many million dollars and I'm going to sue them for so many million dollars, Uh, they came to me and said, we want to settle this, Uh, HCBL's people came to me and said, we want to settle this thing, what do you want? I said I want my lost earnings that I've had, and so on, and so forth, and I want to continue in business until December of '96. Which I wouldn't want any of this part of this conversation put in a book, really.
0: Well. We-